Take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Acts, the first chapter. Today we're going to be thinking about what does the church do after Easter. Had a great Easter uh, service last Sunday down at the Pelham Civic Complex, and we want to think back about what God wants our church and what God wants every church to do after Easter. And we're told very plainly in Acts chapter 1 what we are to do, what that early church was to do, and what we ought to be doing. So when you find Acts chapter 1, if you're able to stand, please join me in standing as we show our respect for the reading of the Word of God. And this is the Word of the living God. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who had been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy words. You may be seated. You know, I read a lot of books, and one of the books I've read recently was written by a man named Christopher Adsit, and it's on personal disciple-making. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. It's not just the job of the church to make disciples. It is the job of every Christian to make disciples. Uh, this is not something we pay the church staff to do that. No, you don't. You can't do that. Uh, we're not gifted enough to make disciples of everyone in this church, and that's why we have discipleship classes. But discipleship is more than just taking classes. I think this is one of the greatest definitions I've ever heard of discipleship. He says a disciple is a person in progress, process who is eager to learn and apply the truths that Jesus Christ teaches him, which will result in ever-deepening commitments to a Christ-like lifestyle. That is a great definition of discipleship. A disciple is a person in process. And by the way, uh, if, you've been, if you got saved last Sunday, you are to be a disciple. If you got saved 60 years ago, you are to be a disciple. The only time you stop being a disciple is when you know all that God wants to teach you. And I don't believe anyone has ever reached that place in their life where they knew everything that God wants to teach us. So I hope you are a disciple but as we think about what does the church do after Easter, I think the first thing we need to do is to hear the words of Christ. A disciple listens to his teacher. And Jesus was very specific. He told 
the disciples several things. First of all, he said not to leave Jerusalem. He said stay in Jerusalem. Now you and I would think that the greatest event in human history had just happened. And I know some people say, well, the birth of Jesus was the greatest event in human history. And some people say, no, the prayer in the garden was the greatest event. And some people say, no, the death on the cross was the greatest event. But I will tell you this, if it had not been for the resurrection, all of that would have been meaningless. The resurrection puts the crown on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And after the resurrection, you would think that God would immediately want all these disciples who had come to see Jesus and know Jesus, in fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Corinthians that over 500 people believed in Jesus during the 40 days after the resurrection when he was walking on earth. And so many people saw him, and you'd think God would say, all right, go out into all the world now and tell people what's happened. But he didn't. You see, one of the things we need to understand is sometimes God tells us to do things that we really uh, don't understand at the time. Uh, the longer you're a disciple, the more you'll learn to say, yes, Lord, even if you don't understand why you're saying yes or why the Lord is telling you what to do. But they listened to the words of Christ. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. But then he also told them to this, wait for the Father's promise. Now, in the wonderful prayer he prayed in John's gospel, he said, I will pray the Father and he will send you another comforter. And he said, he'll be just like me, but he'll remain with you. And so in his prayer on the night before he was crucified, Jesus told the disciples the Father was going to send the Holy Spirit. I'll talk a little more about that on down as we get down closer into this passage. But he said, wait for the Father's promise. And by the way, one of the hardest things we do as Christians is to wait. Uh, you know, every now and then I, I get sick. I don't get sick all that often. In fact, uh, I think I've only been to my doctor's office three times in the last year and a half, my regular doctor's office. But when I go, I call and, and I make an appointment and they say, you need to be here at 3. And if they want me there at 3, do you know what time I get there? I get there at 2, okay? Because I, I want to get in and get out and, and get other things done. And so I go in and I don't know if any of you go to the same doctor I do and you go to the window and there's a nice lady there and you write your name down and, and then you go and have a seat. And then you do what all of us hate to do. You wait. And you know what that room is called? It's called the waiting room. I don't think there's a more aptly named room in the world than the waiting room at the doctor's office. The magazines have been there since 1954. <laughs> you know, President Eisenhower was in office, and they're talking about all the boys coming home from Korea and things like that. And the bad thing is I've read every one of them four or five times. And so I'm sitting there waiting. And it's hard to wait, isn't it? We, we don't like to wait. Uh, when my granddaddy, uh, they diagnosed him with prostate cancer, uh, he had to go to a urologist for the first time. He had never been in a doctor's office before. And the doctor told him to be there at 9. They got there at 8. They signed in. And my granddaddy kept looking at his watch. And my mother said, what are you doing? He said, it's getting close to 9. And she said, well, don't worry about it. They'll call you when it's time. You know what he did at 9 o'clock? He got up, went and picked his hat up, and started walking out the door. And she said, where are you going? He said, this guy must have too much business. It's 9 o'clock. He hadn't seen me yet. And he started walking out to the car. Well, my mother didn't know what to do. And she went out and told him. She said, well, Daddy, you've got, a, you've got prostate cancer. You've got to see the doctor. He said, I'm going to find one that keeps regular office hours. And she finally convinced him that if he left, he'd have to walk all the way back to St. Clair County 
And so he finally reluctantly went in and stayed until the doctor said. And, of course, you know what my grandfather told him when the doctor came in? He said, you need to work on being more punctual, son. And he wasn't concerned about his prostate cancer. He's worrying about the doctor not being more punctual. We just don't like to wait. And yet, how do you, how do you learn the deep things of God? By waiting on the Lord. You see, you can't be an instant disciple. Uh, we want things, and we want them right now. There are some things in life that just don't happen right now. Uh, we're going to have a grandbaby end of May, 1st of June. And you know, I, I see some folks around here today that have had babies recently. Some of them will have babies in, in a few months, and that's an exciting time. But, but I want to tell you this. You have to wait. It takes time to produce a baby. I, even our dog is going to have puppies. And uh, she's due sometime this week. And, uh, uh, you know, she, she's obviously aware that something's wrong here. She's not like she normally is. Uh, she, but she has to wait like everybody else. There are times when we just have to wait. Now, we can choose to do it patiently and providentially, or, or we can get all frustrated and, and flustered and, and, and not enjoy it. But Jesus said, wait for the Father's promise. And what was that promise? You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think anybody could say it any better than Billy Graham. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? He said, however, in my own study of the Scriptures through the years, I have become convinced that there is only one baptism with the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer, and that takes place at the moment of conversion. This baptism with the Holy Spirit was initiated at Pentecost, and all who come to know Jesus Christ as Savior share in that experience and are baptized with the Spirit the moment they are regenerated. In addition, they may be filled with the Holy Spirit. If not, they need to be. I want to explain this to you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time experience. It's like being saved. You don't need to get saved over and over and over and over again. Uh, you're saved one time. You're born again one time. You're regenerated one time. Uh, and like being regenerated, the, the process of regeneration happens when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Can I tell you this? You can't decide when you want to be saved. Some of you sitting here today and you've heard the gospel and you're sitting back there and you're saying, okay, preacher, you hit me with your best shot, but I'm not coming down that aisle and I'm not going to bow my head and I'm not going to ask Jesus Christ to be my Savior and Lord. I'm just not ready. There's a lot of things I want to do. And when I get through with doing all the things I want to do, then in my own time, I'll do that. I want to tell you, you can't do that. The Bible says you can't be saved apart from Holy Spirit conviction. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit convicts you of your need for Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. The Holy Spirit convicts you that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And then the Holy Spirit leads you to repent of your sins and be saved. You can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. And when you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in you. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon people. He would come upon people and leave people. Samson is the, the one great example I think of. The Spirit would come upon Samson, and what was Samson designed to do? To throw off the yoke of the Philistines against Israel. And when the Holy Spirit came upon him, he would be supernatural, supernaturally charged with power, and he could defeat a thousand Philistines because he had the Holy Spirit. And yet when Delilah cut his hair and he woke up, the Bible said he didn't even realize the Holy Spirit had departed from him. Now I want to tell you, that happened in the Old Testament. 
But once the Holy Spirit comes to reside in your life and in my life, he resides there forever. He doesn't come just to visit. He comes to stay. And that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Now, it didn't happen to the church until the day of Pentecost. But it happens to us at our salvation. So hear the words of Christ. But then also, not only do we need to hear the words of Christ, we need to heed the words of Christ. Notice that we're interested in prophecy. Notice what the disciples said. They said, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? In other words, they said, Lord, we want to have a prophecy conference. You know, that's one of the most popular topics the church has ever had is prophecy. And I love prophecy. But you know what I know by studying prophecy? Nobody knows the day or the hour when Jesus is coming. If somebody gets up here, I, I was remember when that guy wrote the book, 88 Reasons Why Christ is Going to Return in 1988. Well, guess what? Jesus didn't return in 1988. The guy published a book the next year, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1989. I thought, this guy's kind of on a roll. And, of course, he was wrong. And later on he had to say, I was wrong. The Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels in heaven. Only the Father knows that. You see, we're interested in problems. We, we like kingdom stuff. Hey, we want to ride in with King Jesus on white horses. And trust me, it's going to happen, all right? Uh, you say, I don't even like horses. Well, you'll like that one. You'll ride on it uh, all the way from the Milky Way down to the, to the streets of, of Jerusalem. And we're going to reign with Jesus a thousand years uh, I'm excited about that. I've always wanted a horse. In fact, every year when I was a boy for Christmas, I told Santa Claus, I want a pony and a shotgun. And Santa Claus never believed in me uh, enough to bring me a pony and a shotgun. But one of these days, I'm going to get a white horse. I won't need the shotgun because I won't be fighting anybody then or shooting uh, squirrels or anything then. Uh, all I'll need is my white horse. And I'll come riding down from heaven with Jesus on my white horse. That's going to be a great day. But I don't need to worry about that. That's all under God's control. Amen. God's in charge. Of, by the way, don't worry about the economy. Don't worry about North Korea. God's still in control of this world. Uh, don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, God is still in control of this world. We're interested in prophecy. But notice, Jesus reminds us we should be interested in power. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice the priority. He said, but. He said, but you. Now, now, whenever you see the word but in Scripture, it's there for a reason. And he's saying, you want to know about the, the, you want to know about the end of time. You want to know about the kingdom. But he said, you don't need to be interested in that. There's a higher priority for you. He said, instead of worrying about the kingdom, the kingdom will take care of itself. You worry about being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a priority. And then it's personal, but you. Now, the Holy Spirit is not just for preachers. The Holy Spirit is not just for Sunday school teachers. The Holy Spirit is not just for worship leaders or choir members or musicians. The Holy Spirit is for every person who knows Jesus Christ. The power of the Spirit is, av is available to you. Listen, you ought not parent your children unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You ought not sit in a Sunday school class unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You ought not ever try to go on a mission trip unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when I've been on mission trips, we always have a service. Sometimes we call it the all-on-the-altar service. Sometimes we call it the come-to-Jesus meeting. 
And what we're doing is we're saying we don't want a Jonah on this mission trip. Now, I'm not saying we don't want anybody named Jonah on the mission trip because we have folks in this church named Jonah, and I don't want them thinking I'm saying they can't go on mission trips. But we don't want somebody to be a Jonah like in the Bible on the mission trip who was supposed to go to Nineveh, and he got on a boat going the other way. You see, only God can check your heart out. I can't check your heart out. But God, and how does God do that? Through the Holy Spirit. We have a meeting. Every time I've ever been on a mission trip, whether it was at E3 or whether it was a church mission trip, wherever it was, we've had a time when we got together and we made sure that we confessed our sins. We made sure that our hearts were clean and pure. I want to tell you, I have that day. I have that time every day. It's called a quiet time. But on a mission trip, you really need that. But, you know, all of us need it every day. It's a personal thing. You. And then notice the power. We'll receive power. And by the way, this is not just ordinary power. This is not like this electrical power. I, I, I don't know a lot about electricity. I know sometimes you have 120 volts or 110 volts, and sometimes you have 220 volts, and that's about all I know. And I know one plug won't fit into the plug that won't, won't hold it. And if you try to force it in there, you'll probably get electrocuted. I know enough about it not to kill myself. But I don't understand electrical power. But I want to tell you, that's puny power compared to the power of the Holy Spirit. Because this is the word dunamis in Greek, D-U-N-A-M-I-S. We get our word dynamite from it. Now, I want to tell you this, I don't mess around with dynamite. My grandfather was a miner, and he had mining supplies at his house, and he had grandkids at his house, and he had dynamite at his house. And you think, what? I want, those were the good old days, weren't they? You know, they didn't worry about gun control. We had dynamite. You didn't have to worry about guns. We had, we, you know, we wouldn't just shoot you. We'd blow you up if we wanted to. But, uh, you know, I never touched the dynamite. I knew right where it was. I saw the box. I read dynamite on it. But you know what? I never touched that box. You know why I didn't touch that box? Because I like breathing air and walking on grass. I, I, I like to live. And, and, and I had heard what would happen if I ever touched that box. They said, don't fool with that. And they said, if you don't fool with it, it's safe. And you know, my granddaddy kept that for a long, long time. And finally, he did away with it because it was old. And he said, it's getting unstable. But he had that dynamite on his shelf. Well, that's the kind of power we have in us from the Holy Spirit. You have dynamite power within you when the Holy Spirit fills you. And then notice the paraclete. When the Holy Spirit has come on you. Now, the word paraclete is the Greek word used in the Gospel of John. It's translated comforter, and it literally means one who comes alongside of you. And, and uh, uh, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't just come alongside of you. He comes and lives inside of you. But that's the comforter Jesus said would come, and he said he would lead you into all truth. So when you find truth, you've been led to it by the paraclete. Now, you're a teacher. Your teacher might can impart truth to you, but he was led to that truth, or somebody that imparted that truth to him was led there by the Holy Spirit. And notice the purpose for this power. It's not so we can put on a show. You know, the people love Jesus to put on a show. They love to see him heal the sick. They love to see him raise the dead. They especially loved it when it was dinner time and he, he fed them fish and bread. But when Jesus started talking about you're going to have to die to follow me. They didn't want to hear that. They said, no, we, we don't like that. You see, they liked the show, but they didn't like discipleship. They didn't like commitment. They didn't like following Jesus even to the death. Well, what's our purpose? 
you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now the word witness scares some Christians to death. When they see the word witness, you think they're going to give me a card and they're going to send me to a house and it's going to look like the house on Haunted Hill and there are going to be big snarling dogs in the yard and there are going to be juvenile delinquents in the front yard with knives and clubs waiting for me to walk up into their yard and I'm going to go up there and it's going to have a long staircase and there's going to be holes in that staircase that will drop you 15 or 20 feet to the ground and when I get up there I'm going to ring the doorbell and I'm going to pray nobody's home because I've got to go up there and ask them when you die, are you going to heaven? That's what I'm supposed to say. Let me tell you what witnessing is all about. Witnessing is just telling to someone else what God has done for you. That's all it is. It, it, it's not having a, a long story. You know, I, I wasn't saved till I was 16. But that was God's timing, you know. Could I have been saved before? Probably, but for whatever reason, in God's providence, I wasn't. But I want you to you know, when I started listening, I listened hard because I was saved at 16, and I was called to the ministry at 17. God had a plan and purpose for my life. I didn't see it then. I see it like more clearly now. But all a witness does is, is tell other people what he or she has seen. If you're ever called on to testify in court, I was in court uh, this week for a happy occasion. Uh, Reed and Melanie. Uh, we're we're, we're uh, uh, granted uh, adoption papers on those two precious boys. And they're Howards now, aren't they? They're the Howard boy. Ha hallelujah. That's great. And, and you know something? Judge Fuermeister, who did the adoption proceeding, told those little boys, he said, boys, you're in my fraternity now because when I, I was a little boy, I was adopted. And I wanted to raise my hand and say, Judge, when I was 16, I was adopted. I was a child of Satan. And when I was 16 in a cornfield in Walker County, I realized I was a lost sinner and I was dying going to hell. And Jesus died on the cross to save me. And if I trusted in him, I could be saved and have the Holy Spirit come live in me. And God adopted me and his family when I was 16 years old. I loved it. He let those little boys wear his robe. He had his picture made with them. And, boy, they looked good. They had their seersucker suits on. They, I, I like that. You know, anything in seersucker, great. After Easter, all right. Uh, I had to wear it after Easter. And they did that. They looked sharp. But you know, that's, that, what happened to those boys? They got adopted. What happened to you when you got saved? You got adopted. You got a brand new daddy. The devil quit being your daddy when you got saved. You say, what you mean the devil? That's what Jesus said. He told the Pharisees, he said, you are of your father the devil. You see, when you're born, you have the devil for a father because you're in the flesh. What is born of flesh is flesh. But then when you're born of the Spirit, God becomes your father and you're adopted into his family. Well, that's the purpose. We're to be witnesses. And I made it real clear. I wrote this out. I made it real clear. What's God's work? Sending the Holy Spirit. What is our work? Receiving the Holy Spirit. What is God's work? Filling us with the Holy Spirit. What is our work? Emptying ourselves of sin. Be cleansed. God cannot fill a dirty vessel we have to repent of our sin we have to realize I'm not all that I should be you talk about how can I know 
what all sins I've committed. You get quiet with God and say, God, show me the things in my life that are sin, and I promise you if you're a child of God, he'll start revealing them to you, and he'll reveal them. Sometimes he'll reveal them so fast you'll have a hard time writing them down if you have a pen and a piece of paper because he'll see things in your life you never thought of seeing. You know, you know what the most common sin in the life of a Christian is? It's not adultery. It's not fornication. It's not lust. It's pride. It's pride. Because there are some folks here this morning, and, and, and you say, oh, preacher, are you, are you mad at me? Are you, are you calling my name? No, I'm not calling your name. I'm just saying, check this out. Pride is the greatest enemy to the being filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can be proud as the devil and not know it. You say, how can I get rid of that? You go to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will reveal that to you, and he will not leave you alone until you deal with it. You have to be willing to give it up, but he will reveal it in your life. Our work is emptying ourselves of sin. God's work is saving the lost. Our work is witnessing to the lost, telling them what's happened to us. We do that in many ways. When we go out to eat, we always ask our server her name or his name and ask them, is there anything we can do to pray for you? You'd be amazed. You'd be amazed that sometimes tears come to their eyes when you ask them that. Nobody has asked them that. And, and it, you know what's blessing to me? Is when I go out to eat somewhere here in Pelham and, and, and somebody will say, well, you must go to that church down the street. And I say, I do. I go to that church down the street. And I say, you know, people from that church ask us that every time they come in here. You think I get tired of hearing that? Absolutely not. You think people get tired of hearing we care about you, we won't pray for you? Absolutely not. Our job is witnessing to the lost. God's work is sanctifying believers. Only God can bring sanctification. But our work is discipling believers. And let me tell you, we can disciple believers several ways. First of all, we can do it in Sunday school to some extent. That's not the best way to disciple. That's a great small group. It's a great way to teach the Bible. But discipleship is best done in real small groups or one-on-one. -on -one. But we, we offer people all kinds. I want to tell you, if you go on a mission trip, guess what you're going to do? You're going to be discipled. Brother John, you don't want anybody going on a mission trip this summer that hadn't been discipled. Brother Sam, where are you? Back there in the back row. All right. Brother Sam, you don't want anybody going to Peru who hadn't been discipled, do you? Because they're going to be discipling people. And Paul, I know you don't want people going to Africa that, that hadn't, hadn't, hadn't been discipled. Listen, our job is to disciple believers, not to sanctify them. And God's work is leading us into all the world, and our work is to go into all the world. Do you realize that for the first time in many, many years, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention has young people that God has called to the mission field who've gone to seminary, they're trained, they know where God wants them to go, and they're waiting to be sent for lack of funds. Years ago, we had people that we needed on the mission field. We had money to send them and had no one to send, and now it's just the opposite. We have people who are ready to go and not enough money to send them. We need to trust God that he'll provide for us to send those because he's leading them into all the world, and our job is to go into all the world. Go back to that book on the Holy Spirit by Billy Graham. 
On page 214, he says, Our world needs to be touched by Christians who are spirit-filled, spirit-led, and spirit-empowered. Are you that kind of Christian? How would you answer that question this morning? Are you spirit-filled, spirit-led, and spirit-empowered? What does the church do after Easter? Well, the early church had to wait because the Holy Spirit didn't come down until Pentecost. You know what the word Pentecost means? It means 50. What, 50 what? 50 days since the Passover. Jesus arose. He walked on the earth for 40 days. Ten days later, Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit comes down. They didn't have to wait long, but they had to wait. Guess what? You don't have to wait. The Holy Spirit is here. And he is in those people who trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There's only one baptism of the Holy Spirit, but there are many fillings of the Holy Spirit. My wife's car has a light that comes on whenever the gas gets low. Almost every time I get behind the wheel of my wife's car, if I want her to know I told this, I will tell her myself. All right. Gossip is a sin. Remember that. Almost every time. And you know it's the truth, too. Yesterday, guess what? Driving home, not only did the light come on, but this little bell rang. Ding, ding. I hate it when that happens. And you know what my wife told me? She said, would you drop me off at the house and go fill the car up with gas? And you know what I said? I said, yes, dear. And I went and filled that car up with gas. And I got that car just as full of gas as I could. Because you know what's going to happen? In about another week, I'm going to get in it. And the light's going to come on and a little ding-ding is going to go off and I'm going to take it back and fill it up. Let me tell you, you don't have to go to a filling station to get filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't even have to come to the sanctuary to get filled with the Holy Spirit. All you have to do is make yourself available and God will fill you. You are living beneath your privilege as a Christian if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Does he empower your life? Is he pointing you in paths that you should walk? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for clear teaching on what the church needs to do after Easter. We thank you for Easter. We thank you for the resurrection. We're thankful that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved, that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, that they spoke with tongues, and people from all over the world heard the gospel in their own language. And God, the Holy Spirit has not changed. He is still powerful and we need to be filled with the Spirit. Father, if there's somebody here today that's lost, I pray the Holy Spirit would reveal to them in this moment that they are lost, that they need to be saved. I pray the Holy Spirit would reveal to them that Jesus is the only way of salvation. I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead them to repent, to turn from their sins, and Lord, they would then open their hearts and receive Jesus Christ by faith into their life, and that they'd never be the same. They'd leave here having been baptized in the Spirit, receiving Christ, starting out on the road of discipleship that will end someday when they see you face to face. 
Father, let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. May we be faithful in teaching the Word, preaching the Word, sharing the Word, helping others in Jesus' name, ministering to those who are the least and lost until you call us home or come for us. In Jesus' name, amen.